following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. What is up, everyone, and welcome to the Diabetes Podcast, where we discuss how to take control of your health and gain the freedom to live the life that you deserve. I'm Gary Pano, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Grady Donahoe, who is a board-certified chiropractic internist. So welcome back, everyone, to the Diabetes Podcast. Uh, I'm not even sure what episode we're on, but uh, appreciate everyone tuning in right now. Yeah, it's good to have you back, Eric. Yeah, it was uh, it was absolutely really fun to listen to your solo podcast there, uh, Grady. Just I got so excited too, just because I always get excited when you do things out of your own. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, no, I thought your discussions on CGMs were. Uh, really in depth and the 50 minutes or whatever however long it was went by uh, at a good pace so uh, I thought it was very insightful thanks but, I appreciate that yeah so today uh, we're gonna be talking about digestion and insulin and things like that in, in a certain way but I remember growing up that I was always thought a carb was a carb and that's all as a diabetic I had to worry about mm-hmm so Grady, like now, my question is for you, like right now at this given moment, when you give yourself a dose of insulin, is carbs the only thing that you consider? Not besides, you know, in terms of the meal itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely not. Like all things being equal, if I am eating a meal and let's take out like the exercise component or activity level component or anything like mm-hmm. that, and we're just talking about the meal itself, um, carbohydrates is definitely not the only thing I'm thinking about. Um, especially since, um, I'm relatively low carbohydrate when I eat, um, I'm taking into account a lot of different things. So, um, you have to take into account how much proteins in there, how much fats in the meal. And then obviously the carbohydrates affects that too. And, um, and then there's a ton of other things that go along with it. Like I said, the activity levels, but even your stress levels, because that affects how how fast your digestive system is flowing and all that good stuff too. So um, it's not just about carbohydrates because the insulin that you're injecting doesn't necessarily care if you are digesting at a certain speed or not. It's going to be working at a basically a fixed amount of time. So um, so if I if I'm eating something that's going to be delaying that glucose response then I have to take into account how much I take at that moment. And maybe I have to wait a little bit to then take another dose to make sure um, that I don't drop low immediately right after I eat. Gotcha. So, and on the surface level, you can almost see what you're talking about from you, you take a dose of insulin after a meal and then you notice that it's kind of all steady and then it just kind of spikes up like a certain amount of time after the meal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. yeah. So yeah, depending on what your meal consists of, you may be spiking super fast. You may be spiking uh, an hour later or two hours later. 
It all depends mm. on um, what you're eating and how your body's processing it. Mm. Yeah. So that, that spike is, you know, what we call uh, postprandial, you know, mm-hmm. after a meal, you know, that postprandial hyperglycemia and how, what we're zoning in on or what yours seems like you're zoning in on too is the, uh, the digestion time or what a fancy, a fancy uh, word for that is gastric emptying time. Mm-hmm. And what that means is how long does it take for the food to leave your stomach and enter your small intestine? And that kind of wave physical property motion, um, how long does that take? Because that physical motion of your of those organs is going to then change when you are absorbing those nutrients and therefore then hitting your blood sugar. Mm-hmm. So it can be physically seen like to a, someone who's not thinking about digestion as what you, you know, what you kind of scribe about this post uh, or, you know, this hour, two hours, whenever it hits you um, after you eat. Uh, but from a physiology perspective, it's all about how you're digesting and how fast you're digesting and then how fast that's turning to glucose. Right. Yep. Uh, so we, we have two articles here that both Grady and I have read. Um, and then Grady also has a lot of clinical experience working with digestion with patients too. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll kind of go over these articles and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about them as well. But I wanted to, when you think about digestion, you know, doc, what, what are you thinking about in terms or what do you commonly see both in diabetic patients, probably mostly type two that you see, and then, um, mm-hmm. and maybe some type ones as well as, you know, non-diabetic patients that you have. Yeah. So as far as like symptomatology that screams at me that this person probably has digestive issues, there's, there's a pretty extensive list that I could pick out of a hat and say, Hey, this person may be dealing with some digestive issues, but I would say some of the more common things would be things like uh, belching or burping. um, Because if that's going on, it's because you don't have enough stomach acid to digest food efficiently and you t- that's when you tend to have that um, also indigestion or heartburn typically means you're not digesting food very well and therefore it's sitting in the stomach and then coming back up a little bit um, even just like your normal or what people think would be maybe related to other things um, but like bloating um, or gassiness especially if it's foul smelling um, or even if it's excessive but not foul smelling um, indicates some different things with digestion that's going on. Uh, but like I said, there's a ton of things that that could indicate some digestive issues, but those are some of the more common things where I'm like, all right, this person definitely needs to have some work done as far as getting their digestion going again. And isn't burping normal though? <laughs> like I feel that's, like burping is like normal. <laughs> yeah, that's what everybody likes to think. But if you're burping after a meal, um, that's that's a significant indicator that your digestion is not working well, unless you have like something carbonated, then that's just gas because okay. you um, you're basically ingesting gas, and so that's just coming back out. Or if you're if you have something that you know for whatever reason has a lot of air in it, like I know um, there's some uh, protein powders that when you blend them up, they get like really fluffy, and so then when you ingest them, you're gonna have a lot of gas in your um, in your body and so it has to come out some way um so in that regard it's not necessarily a problem but if you're having like a normal meal without any of that stuff then and you're having burping or belching 
um, then you definitely need to have somebody look at your digestion because it's probably a problem for you. Gotcha. Yeah, my mind immediately, once you said, continue to say that it was normal, I was like, well, what about soda? Like, what about something carbonated? But you're in, in, you are ingesting gas, so that's just, therefore, the burping is just a response to gas being released. But mm -hmm. you're saying, like, any kind of meat, like, if you just have, um, you know, a steak dinner or a bowl of Cheerios or whatever have you, and you start burping, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, man, something's going on with that digestion. Yep. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So those are, those are some common symptoms and that are functional systems that something's going on with somebody's digestion and what that can alter or one of those aspects or, or a big part of it is how food moves along your digestion system. You know, that has a lot to do with, you know, the, how you are then having those symptoms. And this one article uh, that, that Grady and I want to share is um, from 2019, um, actually June. So literally a year ago, June 20th. Oh, just, uh, you know, literally almost a year and four days. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it's entitled postprandial glucose control and type one diabetes importance of gastric emptying rate. And I wanted to read a couple parts and discuss a couple, couple parts with you, uh, Grady. So briefly in the abstract, which for people who, who are not necessarily read scientific articles that often abstract is just like a, a summary, you could mm -hmm. say. But the, it says the macronutrient composition of a meal, the rate of gastric empty, emptying, and pre-meal insulin administration are key factors that affect the postprandial glucose response in type 1 diabetes patients. So those three things, if you are somebody, which I feel like that's this postprandial, like after this meal, that's where the yo-yo begins. Mm -hmm. And the yo-yo has such a big impact on your A1C, on your mood, your energy, like we've talked about. And so controlling that, that initial unwinding of that yo-yo from the meal is really important. And those three things that really do that is what is the meal made up uh, out of, how fast it's leaving you and moving through you. And I really underlined this part just because I don't do this. I'm not sure if you do this. Pre-meal insulin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, like do, you, do you bolus before you eat? Well, that depends on what I'm eating because if oh. I'm if I'm eating something or consuming something that I know is going to hit my blood sugar pretty hard and pretty quick, then I do take insulin beforehand because I want to catch it before it spikes too high. Um, mm -hmm. However, for the most part, with my normal meals, because like I said, they're usually pretty low glycemic index foods and um, slower digesting, slower absorbing, and therefore that spike's going to be slower. So normally I don't bolus beforehand um, because um, if I did, I would end up going low and then trying to fight it back up. So, um, so for the most part, I don't, unless, like I said, it's going to be a food that's going to spike me pretty high, mm. pretty quick. Well, that's not, I was expecting you to get on my bag wagon and say, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, maybe it's just me that I don't know, but, um, or maybe other listeners can relate. But I feel like it's hard to do pre-meal insulin. Mm -hmm. It's hard to know exactly how much you're going to eat, what you're going to eat. And um, so therefore, most people aren't robots and just like know exactly all the time. Yeah. Uh, but that is really a big factor, especially if you do eat faster digesting foods, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, and for whatever reason. Yeah. And 
I don't necessarily, like you said, it's hard to know exactly how much you're going to eat all the time, especially if you're a kid. I remember um, they told me in the hospital, like, you should take your insulin like 30 to 15 minutes before you eat. Yep. And told me that too. And me and my dad were like, how the heck do I know how much I'm going to eat? Because like, I'm mm-hmm. a kid, I'm eating a lot. And, you know, sometimes you're really hungry and you eat a lot. Sometimes you feel really hungry and then you end up, end up eating not, not a lot. So you can right. get in trouble with that if you take insulin beforehand. So, um, so for the most part, even now, you know, I don't always know how much I'm going to eat. But like I said before, if I know I'm going to have something that's going to spike pretty quickly, I'll at least take enough insulin to cover that. And then if I do end up having more, I can always bolus a little bit more later. Gotcha. Yeah. I think a lot of people then can, uh, empathize with that, which mm-hmm. what you're saying, a lot of type one patients, um, and even maybe some type two patients or anyone that has to take, you know, exogenous or outside insulin. But so again, so then in summary from that statement, what the food's made out of the rate of gastric emptying and the pre-mill insulin administration are key factors in controlling the beginning parts of that yo-yo, that post-prandial glucose spike. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I thought it was important to, that these authors pointed out themselves is that type one diabetic patients frequently present a delayed gastric emptying that produces a lower, but more prolonged postprandial hyperglycemia. Meaning as a diabetic, there's a greatly likelihood that you are already have a lower digestion rate. And that therefore is going to affect how that blood sugar is going to rise after you eat a meal, because it's going to, the time for you to move food through your, stomach to small intestine is longer. Mm-hmm. And I think they even uh, quoted, I don't know if they quoted another study, but they wrote in there that 40 to 50% of type one diabetics have altered gastric emptying. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that's a pretty large portion. Um, and so I think it's important that we're talking about this because people need to know that this is a factor in mm-hmm. how they need to dose their insulin. Right. And I think, one thing that in terms of a complication of diabetes that even you and I, when we went over like basic complications on whatever episode, really didn't talk about when we're talking about neuropathies, people automatically go hands and feet, mm-hmm. uh, but you can get neuropathies all kinds of places and a common place for diabetics. And that leads into that statistic is you can get neuropathy on your stomach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can get the, the, the nerve damage around your stomach because you have nerves everywhere throughout your body. And so those nerves in particular communicate to and from your brain and the rest of your body and what's going on. Mm -hmm. And those nerves can be damaged as a diabetic from complications of high blood sugar. Yep. Yeah. They call that autonomic neuropathy because the autonomic system is essentially the one that is controlling your internal organs there. And so if you're having damage to those nerves, you're going to develop issues and in this case, we're talking about slowing down the digestion rate and slowing down the function of your intestines. And one question that kind of popped up in my mind when I saw that, because honestly, I, I forget about that all the time. I don't even really think about it in relation to diabetes. But I think about the digestion and improving digestion all the time in my practice because that's obviously an issue with a lot of people, not including diabetics or, or not. And 
So with those people, a lot of times we do what we call vagal exercises to help activate the Mm -hmm. vagus nerve to improve that function and improve that communication to the internal organs. And so my question then that popped up from that is, well, I wonder what would happen with those diabetic patients if we gave them vagal exercises to do and if that would possibly change that. I think that would be a pretty cool study to see. Uh, Obviously, that would be a long-term study and kind of a hard one to do, but I think it would be interesting to see. That would be interesting to see. It would be hard just because if you have the complications of autonomic neuropathy, you've been having complications for a long time. Mm -hmm. You certainly have other comorbidities and other things going on with your body. And that's hard to control for. Um, And, you know, you can talk about that throughout the study, but... Uh, yeah, it would be it would be a hard study to do, but it'd be very interesting. I think what is because there's two articles we're talking about, and another article was specifically designed for type one diabetic patients that didn't have complications, that were younger in terms of their diabetic age. Um, you know, they had to be at least diabetic for three years, but they had to be in relatively good control and no complications, and they turned some people away. Um, so it's, it's hard to this patient population is very particular. Uh, but I think what you and I love about this, these topics and connecting with other diabetics um, is that you can extrapolate a lot of information about normal physiology from understanding mm-hmm. type one physiology. Yeah. Um, that's kind of getting off the beaten path, focusing back <laughs> <laughs> at the task at hand. So, and, and the, one of the major conclusions of, of this article and this article that we're talking about in particular from 2019 right now is a review article, which just means it's more of a, it's not an article describing specific study, but it's taking all current literature and try to synthesize, you know, a story. It's, you can almost think about it like as a current textbook uh, review articles, and you can use it to get inspiration from, to do other types of studies or, or, or kind of, get a good lowdown on what's actually going on with this, some process. But anyway, so the major conclusions that they felt like after writing all of this was the following, including gastric emptying time and meal composition into algorithms for insulin bolus calculations of the insulin delivery system could be an important step forward for optimizing postcranial glucose control in type one diabetes. So essentially, I mean, I, I've never thought of myself as using algorithm and calculations. Like, like that sounds so <laughs> Makes robotic. Makes me sound really smart. I'm like, yeah. I, I do those, but it doesn't sound like <laughs> going through my head doesn't look that pretty. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely not. Uh, so essentially what they're saying is, and we'll kind of talk about how these things are actually studied and how that could be possible to uh, consider gastric emptying time. But they're saying in the future, you know, not only do you need to think about carbs and insulin, but we should be thinking about the whole meal, what it means, as well as to the individual, how you are specifically digesting food and how that's going to change your blood sugar. And when we learn that and when we can imp- implement that, we can have a much, much better um, reaction to food in terms of how we're stable. And I think those type one diabetics who are really, really dialed in, um, whether consciously or unconsciously, do this. They think about their digestion and think about how fast certain meals are going to go through them and when the spike's going to hit. I mean, you can learn all this stuff as a type one just by looking at the curves in your CGMs or the curves in your individual 
data points. But when we're talking about this and what's going on, this is, this is what's going on. Mm-hmm. So kind of taken from the top, um, and the importance of all of this is that when we consider that spike or that postprandial hyperglycemia, uh, it contributes greatly to overall glucose control assessed by A1C. So A1C is a number we all want to get dialed in. And um, the increase of risk of micro and macrovascular complications in diabetic patients. Um, it's debatable on how this is independently re- can be related to your heart, but they know that this is op- very important to long-term health of a diabetic. Yeah. Period. Well, and even, even with short-term stuff, because um, especially when we're talking about cardiovascular disease, most cardiovascular events, so AKA heart attacks, things or strokes, things like that, happen after a meal and that's because when you have say a high high carb meal um, and you have a high spike in 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 insulin then you typically have higher oxidative stress and you have endothelial dysfunction so endothelial dysfunction just means that there's dysfunction in the uh, vessels of the cardiovascular system and so um, if as a diabetic you have some heart condition or a cardiovascular um, complications going on, being able to control that spike and being able to control your postprandial glucose is going to be helpful in reducing that oxidative stress and that endothelial dysfunction. Yes. Yes. Uh, So in short, you know, that oxidative stress that there's that inflammation that can be created is definitely going to be impacted in the short term. Therefore, another reason why you should think about this. Mm-hmm. in terms of your heart but i wanted to read how this paper specifically describes gastric emptying in case it still isn't clear mm-hmm. um it might sound a little bit more nerdy but i wanted this will make it a little more specific so gastric emptying is known to depend on the coordinating motor activity of the stomach in the upper small intestine controlled by the electrical slow waves generated by the intestinal cells. Um, And the regulation of this system uh, depends on the nutrients that are that are inside you, technically on the outside, but inside, you know, for simplicity, inside the stomach and small intestine. So it interacts with the nutrients, the modulation of the vagus nerve and gut hormones. So you already, we've already kind of started talking about the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. And then namely GLP-1, cholecystokinin, peptide YY and ghrelin, which are all gut hormones. So we have hormones in our gut. We have uh, the vagus nerve and the autonomic system. And then we have nutrients within our digestion digestive system that all help control literally this physical wave that propels food along our digestion tract. You can think about kind of just contracting or getting smaller and pushing it just like a tube of toothpaste throughout your body. Mm-hmm. That's like the visual you can think about. So uh, the gastric emptying rate is greatly influenced by the composition of solid and, and or liquid. So what kind of form is it in right now? Um, the energy, so literally just the calories, the macronutrient content of the meal, where I think this is that really the advantage of our discussion or why we're having a discussion is the macronutrient content that mm-hmm. you know, we'll get to that kind of later. But um you know, solid foods are going to create a slower 
gastric emptying time than liquid foods. Liquid will go literally just right through you. That's why like it ran right through you. That's why that's a phrase because mm-hmm. it literally moves across and creates this wave faster than solids. Solids is going to be this delayed lag phase then by this huge kind of, you know, curve, which is exactly what we see with blood sugar on a CGM, mm-hmm. right? So solid and liquid. So that has something to really consider, you know, what are you eating? What are you drinking? And then the calorie content, it's been actually shown in studies that a gastric emptying time of a meal that has the same exact macronutrients, you know, that, but they literally just amplified all the numbers. So the ratios are the same of fats, carbs, protein. Those ratios are the same, but the calories are just greater. The gastric emptying time is just slows down dramatically. So just how many calories, which I think everyone can make sense of. Like you eat yeah, a big so, meal. Yeah, yeah. You eat a big meal, you're going to have a hard time getting through that thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Part of the reason, and not tryptophan, this is just such a pet peeve <laughs> in freaking Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that why you get sluggish after a big meal because mm-hmm. part of it is just the calories and how fast you're moving it through your system mm-hmm. not tryptophan <laughs> okay uh, so and then probably the, what most people talk about especially since you know I feel like right now um, plant based diets and veganism is, is really popular right now maybe it always has been I don't know but I feel like it's really popular right now. So a lot of people like to think about fiber, dietary fiber. And that absolutely is one of the nutrients that's going to slow down your digestion and this, this gastric emptying time. But fats and proteins and low glycemic index foods, so foods that just don't have a lot of simple sugars but have more complex sugars and it's just um, you know harder to break down and takes longer, all is going to slow down gastric emptying time. So these things all come together synergistically to really decide how you're moving food throughout your digestive system. And hyperglycemia, even so we're talking from diabetics, but you know, you know, we work with a lot of non-diabetics too in in our Mm -hmm. offices. And when somebody has hyperglycemia, even at a normal level, which probably would be like 144, milligrams this paper quotes eight millimolars but you know well i had to do the conversion <laughs> uh but even as with people around 144 milligrams per deciliter like high blood sugar in a non-diabetic patient um when you have high blood sugar that itself is going to slow down your digestion mm-hmm. yeah and when I- you yeah, acts as basically a safeguard it's another safeguard right. for your body to control that spike in in blood glucose so um, if your blood sugar is high it's going to slow down that digestion so it doesn't spike even higher yeah yeah and in the same reason that safeguard there is a the reverse is true if you have hypoglycemia or low blood sugar even at a normal physiological level it's going to actually quicken your digestion it's going to it's going to change your gastric emptying time so that way it's faster for you to move food through you and so you can digest it. Um, and that is a safeguard because obviously if you're low blood sugar, you want to be restored to normal blood sugar as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. So it's going to go through you faster. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, or at least I intuitively kind of knew this. I think a lot of diabetic or type ones at least intuitively know this, 
kind of phenomenon because um, whether it's on the high end or low end, you can definitely feel it on the low end, or at least I do, where if my blood sugar is low and I just ate a meal, man, I feel like, boom, it just ran right through me and I'm hungry again. It's not even so much like, obviously, you're craving sugar, but it's like, no, I'm actually hungry. My stomach is empty because my blood sugar is low. And mm-hmm. and then on the on the high end, when your blood sugar is high, man, you just feel like you just got like a rock sitting in your stomach because it's just not mm-hmm. moving hardly at all. So literally that imagine like there is this, um, there's a flap in, in, in a pipe, right? You have low, high, low blood sugar. You have low blood sugar. So that flap is way more open. It's going to go through the rest of the tube much faster. And then you realize you are still hungry. So then you have more, right? Mm-hmm. And so then you have more food and now your blood sugar is spiking out of control. And so now that flap is closing and really hard to open and barely getting anything through that pipe. And so now it's closed. Well, what do you do with high blood sugar then? You take a lot of <laughs> insulin, right? This is yeah. the yo-yo effect. You take a lot of insulin, then the blood sugar starts dropped. It goes up, down, up, down. So now you imagine not just this fluctuation of blood sugar, but imagine this flap and this pipe opening, closing, opening, closing. There's literally this turbulent of food that is di- trying to digest through your body that is being turbulent too, just like how blood can be turbulent. Just like how air outside can be turbulent and this turbulence, you know, you want to know why you're feeling crappy when you, when you have that yo-yo effect and your blood sugar is all over the place. Well, your food is literally sloshing around and it, and it's just making everything just feel so slowed down. Why is this happening? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think another important thing to point out, especially when we're talking about the stomach pushing things through to try to get the blood sugar up. If you have protein in your stomach, but your stomach's trying to push all those carbs out to get your blood sugar up, it's going to be pushing out that protein too. And if you haven't digested mm. that protein yet, that that undigested protein is going to create a lot of inflammation in your gut too. Sure. That's huge. And that can go into a different part of digestion. We could talk about you know leaky gut, but we'll save yeah. that conversation for another day. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that's absolutely true then too as well. Then you're going to, because proteins are mostly digested in the stomach. It's still digested in the intestines, but not nearly as much. There's like how carbs are mostly digested in the intestine, um, some in the, in the mouth as well, but mm-hmm. barely in the stomach. So it's like it wants to push the carbs through to the intestine, but if you have protein in there, it's got, you're going to just have giant chunks of protein that's not mm-hmm. ready to get injected yet. You know, Obviously, the real physiology is a little more complex than that. You know? yeah. But for conversation's sake, you know, that's what you can think about. Mm-hmm. And it's such a great point because um, then it adds a whole other part of digestion symptoms that um, is what you namely talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. So talking about this conversation actually reminds me of, uh, we'll say when I first went out to college and, <laughs> and so I remember that I, I had low blood sugar when I, I initially went out. And then I turned my pump off because I didn't understand basal rates and I didn't understand temp basal rates. You know, I just, mm. it was like low blood sugar. So I'm just turn my pump off. Yeah. So I go out, I drink a lot of alcohol. I eat a lot of food. Mm. And the next day is literally the worst hangover of my life. I can't imagine. And it, and it lasted me like, almost two days. Like I was, I was just so out of it. I, and I was like, what the heck is going on? 
Well, I find out close to like 24 hours later, my pump's been off this whole time. Oh my goodness. No way. And you know then what happened once I turned my pump on and I like, cause I was like, I was checking my sugars, but somehow I was, it was not like correlating that like my bowls is, I don't know. I like, now this is years ago, so I can't really remember the yeah. details, but once I turned my pump on and I started giving myself insulin, man, I was like back to normal within seconds. Yeah. Because all that food was just stuck in my stomach and I felt all of this, like literally nothing was moving in yeah. my body. Second, I put insulin in my body. Boom. Everything started moving around and my hangover quickly went away. Um, I say that story. Maybe we should edit this out. I don't know. I thought of like to me, like I literally do think about this when, when I, when I think about digestion and how it can make you feel. And when you don't have insulin in you, how it's going to alter that digestion. I, Cause I normally don't think about it as gastric emptying. I think about it as just like, my food is just not digesting, you know, I'm mm-hmm. not thinking about this like rate. And, but I think about that moment all the time, like, holy cow, like once I put insulin in me, in me I'm definitely going to be moving this food through my body. Um, so the insulin and the digestion in a high and low blood sugar settings definitely has, has a big factor. Mm-hmm. Things. So we talked a lot about just the importance of how the rate of that is in, I think we've clearly established that this gastric emptying concept is important mm-hmm. um, in general and what that could look like. But now let's talk about specifically meal characteristics, you know, meaning let's talk about how carbs affect it, you know, how protein affects it and how fats affect it. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happens then when we have these different nutrients in us. And this can be really important to understand because if you're doing a specific diet that's high or low anything, this needs to be in your mind of it's not only its effectiveness, but how then you use that diet. Mm -hmm. So, you know, let's kind of talk about carbs again real fast in terms of how that might, how carbs, let's recap. I think we've talked about this before in one, two, three different podcasts now, but you know, how does carbs affect digestion? Great. In what way? Like, and so how, how do carbohydrates um, change like in terms of the digestion when you have a lot of them, when you have a lot of them, glycemic index, you know, what does it, what does Mm -hmm. it mean for digesting carbohydrates to a human? Yeah. So when you are digesting carbohydrates in purely carbohydrates, then you're typically going to have a quicker and higher spike um, when they're just by themselves. And it all obviously depends on exactly what food you're having. So the glycemic index is a big thing that you want to look at in regards to how fast something's going to hit your system and how fast it's going to spike and how high it's going to spike. So, um, so you have to take that into account. And then, so that's looking at purely the carbohydrate aspect of it. So that's looking at uh, if you were just eating a carbohydrate then really carbohydrates all you need to take into account as far as dosing insulin. However, that's usually not the case for most people. Most people are having some sort of fiber or some sort of protein or some sort of fat along with that. And so then that changes that whole process there. So then what, what do we then think about when you have, we've already kind of talked about when you add proteins to something that's high in a higher glycemic index carb, right? You know, 
something that gets needs to get pushed out with protein in it might be an interesting situation. But what about um, fats, right? So mm -hmm. how do and comparing protein to fat, you know, what does that look like for digestion? And what are the things involved in those that type of digestion that's different for carbohydrates? Yeah. So with proteins and fats, they both will slow down that gastric emptying. So basically they're slowing down that digestive process and therefore they're going to be slowing down that spike in insulin. And so typically you're going to see a slower spike and it's going to be lasting for a longer period of time. Now where the difference comes in between proteins and fats is on that far end of that fast. So when you start getting into um, three, four, five hours after eating a meal, that's where the difference between fats and proteins comes in. Because with proteins, you're going to keep the, it's going to keep the blood sugar much more stable and at a higher level for a longer period of time. Whereas with fats at that three, four, five hour mark, it's going to start dropping back off. And that's when people will start to experience their hypos if they say just had fat with their meal and didn't have any protein. Gotcha. Okay. So, and you kind of almost take this in, um, like, let's say you have a mostly meat meal, which we know we both do sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, right. You, you then counteract this in a very specific way that I think is probably the best way because that way you're not messing with your pump or shots or something like that in a very, what would have to be a dynamic way. When you eat protein and fat meals that have like zero carbs, you know, uh, and let's say it's more protein heavy, or you're thinking about it mostly as protein, like, you know, there's fat there, but like, mm -hmm. how do you then approach that, you know, you know, specifically? Yeah. So with me, it depends on how much protein I have, obviously. Um, if I have, so let's say I eat a high protein and then therefore a high fat meal or relatively then what I will do is typically I'll take just a little bit of insulin. So um, like I said, it depends on how much protein I have, but I might take like for me, two units of insulin right away, like right after I eat the meal. And that will account for that um, gluconeogenesis that happens with the protein that I eat. And then, but typically for me, I'll have a spike that's, like two, sometimes uh, three hours later. And so I'll time it to where I will bolus so that way I mitigate that spike that happens later on. So you give a bolus, you like put a timer on or something? Yeah, I either put a timer on or sometimes I just kind of keep track of it in my head. I bet most of that's what you do. Don't, yeah. don't try to humor most <laughs> of us. You just remember like, <laughs> anyways. <laughs> so you literally bolus hours later. Mm -hmm. And um, then you also said something that you, I think you, what I was actually fishing for initially was that you control how much protein, like you literally just think about the meal mm -hmm. and you say, I'm only going to eat this much amount of protein. Yeah. Like, I think that is, not insane, but it's like, you know, it's diabetics. We want to eat what we want to eat, you know, like long are the days over where, you know, a diabetes educator will say, uh, will say, you know, you can only eat this many carbs. Like this is your meal parameter. 
Mm-hmm. But you don't think about it that way. You think about it more just like ounces, right? You, what is it like? How, you've told me before, half a pound of, of yeah, protein ha- or beef. Yeah, half a is pound that- is just my threshold of beef, um, and it depends on the type of meat. So, like um, beef, I usually won't go over, over half a pound. If I do, I have to change how I dose my insulin. Um, and but with pork, it's different. With pork, I can really only go over like a quarter pound. And so that's kind of my cutoff with pork. If I go over that, then I have to take a lot more insulin, both initially and um, a lot more um, that two to four hours later. And what about like chickens or eggs or something like that? Uh, Chicken is a lot leaner and therefore um, there's less fat to complicate the um that slow increase or that spike later on and so with that it's usually just a little bit of insulin at the time and then just barely a little bit um a couple hours later so not not really a lot sometimes depending on activity levels i won't even have to um, take insulin later for the chicken what about eggs do you have you um, I usually don't eat like a ton of eggs at once. Um, right now I've just been, egg. what's up? And you eat like pretty much whole eggs, right? When you do. Yeah. Yeah. I eat whole eggs. I don't just do egg whites or anything like that. Um, I think the most I'll eat at one time is like six eggs, which is a decent amount. But... <laughs> I think most people will say that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem to affect my blood sugar the same as the meats, as in regards to um, spiking it uh, later on. Now, since you've spent so much energy like feeling this out and 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 how and you've noticed it visually by the response in the graph in the mm-hmm. whether it be the CGM or you just checking your blood sugar, right? Yeah. Um, data, data, data. But how does it, in feeling wise, how does your digestion feel differently when you're when you're having this? I mean, can you comment that at that all? Yeah, that's you a know? great question because that's something that's what we're trying to talk about. Yeah, I mean, that's something I subconsciously kind of think about. But um, and the reason why I say subconsciously is because that's one of the uh, triggers for me as far as mm-hmm. when I feel like I'm high. If I feel like I got like this rock sitting in my stomach or I just kind of feel like my digestion's not feeling too good. That's usually when my blood sugar is spiking. And so that's kind of how initially I kind of figured out that my blood sugar was spiking, you know, two to four hours later is like, Hey, I'm not feeling like my digestion's feeling too good. And then I would check my blood sugar and it'd be spiking really high. And so that's kind of how initially I caught on to it. And so now that I have it under control, I don't have that like, you know, crappy gutty gut feeling later on that, that two out, two to four hours later um, that I was having because um, my blood sugar is more under control. Mm. Wow. So, I mean, you can see it visually on the graph, but you, I mean, it's also possible if you are have the awareness, you know, the interoception, like how is your body what is the internal environment of your body feeling? Mm-hmm. You can literally get so much information on how your body's working if you're thinking about how how do I feel when I'm digesting this stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, I think something that is, since we're kind of talking, we've talked a little bit of the difference between protein and fat. I think what's really common 
both males and females, but it's definitely more common in females. I mean, I, I guess statistically, I, I feel like clinically it's it's true that women get their gallbladders removed more mm, often yes. than, than men. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't, I guess, unless you can correct me right now. I mean, I feel like that is true. Oh yeah. I actually don't know that statistic. Okay. Definitely. Good. Good. That anyways, I just wanted to back myself up there. So thank you. All right. Anyways. So when you have a gallbladder removed, there's really no conversation. They're just like, you need your gallbladder removed. Yeah. It's removed. And then that's it. Mm-hmm. Right. They treat it like that's, a useless organ, like they do the appendix. But in reality, that's right. not. Yeah, Cause the gallbladder, what the, gallbladder then as you know bile right mm-hmm. so that's what people are thinking about bile is actually made by the liver and you're still going to produce bile so when you have your gallbladder removed it's then thought it's it won't affect you that much or yeah, it shouldn't or it doesn't yeah, matter yeah essentially because they leave a part of the um, liver attack or the ducts from the liver attached to the small intestine so it it drips in still but you don't have that gallbladder to concentrate the bile. So that way right. you can squirt it out into a, basically a bolus of bile so it can actually digest the fats. Right. So, so let me kind of back up for you for a second. So bile is a digestive chemical that our body makes and that they, and then it provides mechanical digestion for the fat in our bodies. Mm-hmm. And so we can chew on fat, but it's kind of hard to chew on fat, right? Like you can just kind of <laughs> chew on fat a while, right? And then you just swallow it. Eventually yeah. you get to a point where it's so soft and kind of broken up where you swallow it. But what bile does, it goes in and literally helps break it up physically apart. It doesn't break the chemical bonds in there. So you could think about bile as this chemical that acts as like many teeth specifically for fat inside your body. Mm-hmm. Now, what the we've already, the liver makes it. And then it puts it in the gallbladder to concentrate, which you alluded to. It concentrates. So its function is it literally takes the bile, puts it in a place, and waits for it to be ripe. You know, maybe a bad analogy, but it waits for it to be at a high enough concentration for it to be effective. And then it shoots out, right? Mm-hmm. So when you don't have that, you like you said, you know, it just doesn't squirt out. It just drips in exactly like you said. And that is going to significantly then slow down that fat digestion even more so. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it's going to be affecting your blood sugar in a way that you need to be aware of and notice the differences. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's as we're talking about digestion, as we're talking about gastric emptying, you know, if you have your gallbladder removed, you know, kind of think back. What, you know, are, have your blood sugars changed since then? And if so, like how, and has it been with specific meals? Most likely high fatty meals, you know, like how does that make you feel? Are you getting more of those burping symptoms or those heartburn symptoms or what is going, are you more bloated? You know, what does that really feel like? And when that gallbladder is that sometimes like it, it needs to come out, like when it needs to come out, you know, in some emergency situations, but like, mm-hmm. but it's, it's such an important piece, I think, for us as diabetics to kind of stop and think about since no one really talks about post-op what happens after the gallbladders, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, with those people, I would say, you know, first off, if you are having gallbladder attacks and if you have the opportunity, try to find somebody that can help you with that gallbladder issue. 
before it becomes like a, you know, really emergent thing where you have to get it taken out because it is a really important organ. And now that being said, if you have had it taken out or you do have to have it taken out, um, those people need to have uh, supplemental support. So bile salts with their meals to help digest their fats, because like we said, the concentration of that bile just isn't going to be strong enough from coming from the liver like that. Um, so you do need help with digestion um, supplement wise. So that way it can still run efficiently and you don't have as many problems with that. Right. Exactly. Um, and that's where the healthcare team is really important. Mm -hmm. um, and then once you learn that information as an individual, you can then take that throughout your lives and then you can be an advocate for yourself and then others as well too. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, super important to get the, if you are really confused about that or as you have a gallbladder text to, to seek help, you know, um, I always try to tell people in the office, like if you need it, you need it, but we want to avoid nutritionally avoid you removing that organ. Mm -hmm. uh, um, okay. Moving on. So uh, another component is then that you, we've already kind of talked about a little bit and how you approach then protein, you know, and, and fat, and you literally wait, you change your, your bolusing or, or your dosage thinking and delivery when you're eating meals with different digestion rates, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's super important. If you're only using a, the standard insulin and you're only doing a regular bolus just all at once, 10 units, 10 units going in, you know, that is going to, how you use that is, is really, really important. And you can physically do what you did and wait what I like to do is I like to use dual and square wave boluses. And I th it'd be really interesting to know from pump users, like a, a, a real statistic on how many people use those functions. Because mm -hmm. I feel like not a lot of people do, yeah, but no. it's super important. At least I found it super important. And I would, if I design a pump, I would even make it way more like fun to play with. <laughs> um, so for those who don't know, a square wave bolus is taking a dose of insulin, let's call it 10 units, and giving it over a certain amount of time. So you could say 10 units over 30 minutes, 10 units over an hour, hour and a half, two hours, whatever. And literally it's just taking the units you're giving, dividing it by the minutes. And then it creates a rate and then it's just delivering over time. Yeah, it's um, almost like it's almost like a increased basal rate to a certain degree. Yeah. It is by definition that, but just much, much higher, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what a square wave. Now, a dual wave is the combination of a regular bolus and the square. So I say, I want 10 units, but I want five of it right now. And then I want the next five over a certain amount of time. So it literally looks like a spike and then a square, hence the name dual. And you can say that over however much time. And you normally think about it as percents. So I want 50% of my bolus now and 50% over an hour, you know, whatever. And you can play with the percents and play with the time. If I were making a pump, I would make it so many features. Like I want, I want 30% right now, 20, then 20% over an hour. But like at minute 40, I want another 20%, you know, <laughs> I would, I would have so much fun with it. The reason being, because this is actually how our pancreas then produces insulin, mm -hmm. right? And 
these moments. So in a normal non-diabetic physiology of digestion, the part of our pancreas, you know, that produces insulin, the beta cells, will increase the rate that it's making it. It just automatically knows, even before you start eating it, like the whole thing, you smelling food and you start salivating and you start, mm -hmm. you know, creating saliva, you smell food and you start having digestion hormones in your stomach and your small intestine, including insulin being released right away. Mm -hmm. So it increases the rate that it's producing of insulin. And then on top of it, and then squirts it out at moments, you know, and it's so tightly regulated by the nervous system, by the autonomic nervous system that it just does it flawlessly. Mm -hmm. And the more skilled you can be with dual wave as an individual, if you have a pump, as well as the more sophisticated a dual wave could be, which I wish it could be even more, um, you know, the more closer you are to reflecting the normal physiology of the human, which is ultimately what the goal would be of insulin management, right? Mm -hmm. That's what, why we're talking about digestion. It's a diabetic. We have to be our own autonomic nervous system to a degree. We have to think about digestion, right? We have to think about the carbs, the proteins. We, that's why we're talking about it because mm -hmm. we have to think about it. Yeah. So like the question would be, okay, well, why do I not use the square wave or dual wave with that? Um, especially in regards to what we're talking about or what we just talked about with me and protein. Um, I think I tried that a little bit um, with the protein, but for me, it was the spike, like the two to four hours later is a very immediate spike. It's not like a slow rise. So mm -hmm. for me, I do need that bolus, that, that hard bolus right at that time and not necessarily that slow bolus over time because if I were to do, cause so when I first started playing with this scenario, you know, first I was like, okay, the last time I ate this meal, I went high a couple hours. I was high a couple hours later. And at that time I didn't have the sensor. So I didn't know in between. I just thought maybe, okay, I was high that whole time. I just took the wrong insulin. So I took mm -hmm. that same amount of insulin that I took that last time, but I just took it all at once right at that meal. And man, I dropped low really hard. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so then I, I, I drank, you know, a juice box or something to bring it back up. So now not only was it going up because of the juice box, but then that's when, the spike from the protein and fat hit and boom, man, I was even higher than before. So then I had to figure out, okay, what's, what's actually going on here. And so, um, then I probably, I started playing with the dual and square wave, but it just wasn't cutting it. I was still, you know, kind of dropping low and then spiking. Um, so, so that's why I kind of went towards just the waiting, waiting a couple hours. And then that's when I hit, hit the bolus. Wow. So that's, and that, what, how you do it is probably then how non pump users should use it. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, cause that you could, you can do shots that way, you know, yeah. you can do shots exactly that way. And which is always for me, like, I mean, I'm so thinking about my pump all the time when I meet and talk to somebody who's MDI and I'm just like, Oh man, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to counsel you, but, <laughs> but how you describe it, you know, it, is definitely a way, you know, just literally timing it. And I remember one of the reasons why I didn't like the Medtronic auto loop at, at the time I tried it was because they, you, when you're an auto loop, you could not square in dual wave. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the educators that I talked to at the time suggested, Oh, just do it. Like, you know, time yourself, like put a timer on, you know, kind of how you just know how to do it. Mm -hmm. But for me, man, life is moving forward. <laughs> 
like, like I don't want, like, I want to do an action, you know, I want to give myself my insulin and then just keep moving forward with my day and my life. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have to be thinking about one action an hour later, you yeah. know, personally. And so that's always really hard for me. And, and to purposely like give to act on the same thing, 30 minutes, an hour later, two, three hours later, but for the same purpose as like three, four hours ago, I'm like, this just doesn't seem fruitful personally to me. And so mm-hmm. I always get frustrated with that, but that's exactly, I, I think you are a great example of how and why that works. Mm-hmm. Yep. So how your insulin and how you deliver your insulin is really important into the equation of gastric emptying and timing. And again, if you're not diet or if you're not type one, if you're type two or, or just a you know, non-diabetic, you have, this is still going on in you, but just as a regulation loop, you know, right. Mm-hmm. And so all of these things affect bi-directionally. That's why it's important to know bi-directionally one affects the other vice versa, how fast the food is going to move through you and therefore the blood sugar response you're going to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and uh, I want to bring up another study, at least reference the title. You know, it's the same um, authors uh, titled gastric emptying impacts the timing of meal glucose peak in subjects with uncomplicated type one diabetes. So this is the same authors that originally did this review article that we just talked about. Um, but it actually talks about how they measured gastric emptying. And I think this is, I'll just talk about like that, how, like I necessarily won't go into the results and of the exact finding, even though I think it's super cool. We can, you know, I, w- I was reading this at lunchtime today or reviewing it again um, after my first read through. And I was like, man, this is just like, it, it just, I wish sometimes I was just a researcher, but I know that's not me. Um, <laughs> you know, I've tried that, but anyways, so how they actually measured gastric emptying um, in some of these studies is they measured some of those hormones we mentioned before, um, you know, like glucagon, like peptide, um, ghrelin, you know, those two in specifically can literally change the rate of digestion They measured blood sugars, you know, those types of things. But then they also measured via breath test. They used a C-octane breath test um, with a solid meal. And this was part of the equation when they came to the actual the timing of figuring out gastric emptying. And I bring this specifically up because these authors eventually get to the point of saying, hey, maybe in a clinical setting, it's relevant to use these tests to initially figure out somebody's gastric emptying time and then use that initially part of their algorithms as we cut and how to calculate things initially. Um, So they, how they measured the breath test was they specifically then um, in the study, they had three plum cakes, which I thought was funny. (laughs) That's interesting. Uh, Yeah. Three plum cakes and total nutrients of three plum cakes was a combination of 372 calories, uh, four and a half grams of protein, 45.9 grams of carbs, and then 18.9 grams of fat. So carb heavy, decent amount of fat too, you know, Mm -hmm. like that's, you know, almost 19 grams of fat. That's a decent amount. Mm -hmm. And then four and a half grams of protein. So it's kind of got a mix of everything. And so they ate these three plums, plum cakes, uh, within 10 minutes, they would eat the first two at a time. And then they would specifically ingest a C-octane acid capsule. And then they ate the third one. And they also combined that all, all with 200 milliliters of water. So they 
ate this meal and then at different time points starting at 30 minutes then an hour 45 you know like at certain time intervals they then measured this octane that came out of their breath and that was part of the equation that these guys used to figure out actual gastric emptying time um and then they could calculate these things and track them and they did it, it was a really really cool study um but Again, I bring this up because when we talk about how can this be advantageous for a diabetic, you know, it might be in the future a common practice with your endocrinologist or healthcare team when, okay, it's time to make a new carbon insulin ratio or let's dial it in specifically. Like you've been on, doing great, Grady, like changing those ratios. You know that it's different at different times of the day. You know, you, you're doing a good job experimenting, but let's actually see how you're digesting. Like let's mm -hmm. take a moment to see this what's called gastric emptying time. And now let's think about that specifically with different meals and things like that. And let's tweak it even more together, you know? And I think that's a really cool tool potentially use in the future that they, like they use in the study and they use to create all these conclusions and discussions in these two papers um, is that there is a physical way. It's not just this abstract physiology thing that you read in guidance physiology. Like there is a clinical relevance to what we're talking about from a clinician perspective, as well as then as a individual type one, like, okay, this might be something I do actually have to learn eventually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, this is one of the things I was going to ask you because obviously we know, like I'm talking you and me, we know that this is very important. The, mm -hmm. you know, digestion time, not only with, just purely digestion, but then also how the different macronutrients affects that and how that plays and how do you need to dose the insulin. So um, I think it's really important to then try and get this way of thinking into the mainstream, uh, mainstream medical, because I think a lot of people are a lot of diabetics that are very on top of their health are aware of this and are accounting for this. But those new diabetics or maybe those diabetics that are struggling and don't necessarily do a lot of outside reading or trying to, to learn different things. Or, I mean, sometimes it's just hard to find this info. So, um, mm -hmm. so having this implemented into, you know, mainstream primary care, I think is, would be a huge big step. Um, but so that, that was a question I want to ask you, what do you think this is going to look like in the future? Are people going to be going in for tests to say, okay, this is your gastric emptying time. And then, you know, how specific can we get with this? Can they, mm -hmm. you know, depending on the research, can they get it to where depending on how fast somebody's gastric emptying for is for a certain meal, can they then extrapolate that data out to say, okay, when you eat this amount of protein, this is what you're going to have to do with your insulin. Mm -hmm. I think that eventually would be the goal, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so in the research phase, it's trying to prove, yes, this is important. There is relevance to this. And then creating the algorithm, creating the literal formula. Because I remember, I forgot the name of the formula, but when I very first sat down with my endocrinologist, like when I was first diagnosed, there literally was like a formula, like an algebra equation to like figure out some of these things. Um, you know, and as in like an endocrinology, like training, like if you were an MDDO, like that is part of like that residency, I would imagine is to really yeah. know those algorithms and that math, uh, not just from the personal user side of like insulin pumps. So I would imagine that eventually we need to get there. Okay. 
Yes, this is proven. And then there then be experiments. How can we then use this value and create it in, is it only going to be in basal rates? Is it only going to be, how would that affect bolusing? Like, is that then a new function that you could use, like how there's dual and square waves that not a lot of people use, but then is it there like this third different type of pump function? Um, or is it then knowledge you then kind of learn and then mod and then you can modify a dual wave to appreciate that. Like the reason thing about this, so like this study, um, it's results were, were this. So patients, uh, with type one diabetes had significantly slower gastric empty times or half times, you know, same thing. Um, so they were about 113 minutes on average you know, for this meal in this study compared to controls. So non-diabetics were around 89 minutes, mm. right? So think about this. All right. So gastric emptying time, non-diabetic takes about 90 minutes to move through you and this value where this was about 120 minutes, literally 30 minutes longer. Mm-hmm. Right. So knowing that knowledge, wouldn't you want to know like, yeah, my body does this 30 minutes slower. How does that then calculate to a, a bolus value or a different type of insulin value? I mean, I don't have those answers, mm-hmm. but I, I feel like there is math there to be done to figure out what and experiments to be done uh, and bon- clinical studies to figure this out. Because this is something where, like you said, we're intuitively figuring it out, mm-hmm. but but there, there eventually can be a way. It's better to know why especially with something when you're dealing with a hormone and a drug like insulin that can kill you if you don't do it properly. Mm-hmm. Right. The more you know about how to use that tool, the best way possible will only improve your life will only improve that postprandial hyperglycemia will only improve that high blood sugar that then affects the short term and long term effects of your life. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and so I guess I'm just almost starting to get just really ramped it about why you should be excited to learn this stuff. I mean, I, I, I kind of shared a message with you with somebody who read another type type one who reached out to me and she's been a diabetic for like two, two decades plus. Mm-hmm. And she literally gave up on controlling her diabetes and effect that dramatically affects her health and her family. Mm-hmm. Like figuring out a way to understand this and then explain it in a way that makes sense to better your life, man, I hope the answer is yes. And I hope like other health providers and endocrinologists and people want to scream at the top of their lungs. Yes. This is something we need. Mm-hmm. I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also important along with this conversation to come back to um, our overarching point that we always make in pretty much every episode, which is you need to get data on yourself. Because ultimately, especially now, I mean, we've ta- we just talked about it. We don't have an algorithm for you to figure it out yet. So you have to make your own algorithm. And mm-hmm. the only way to do that is to get data on yourself. So whether you're right. checking your blood sugar constantly or you're using a CGM to monitor how you're responding to certain situations, certain uh, meals, um, you have to have that data to improve your ability to control your blood sugar. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. That data is so important. And, and I think it's funny that there are still others that, you know, we, you can even just ask endocrinologists endocrinologist about like, Hey, like, what are your, what are your opinions on bolusing for just straight protein? 
Yeah. And like I asked my most recent endocrinologist and I've seen a couple since I moved and they're literally their eyes just wide. They're like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, like, and the, the kind of the recommendations is try half the units you would if it was a value of carbs. So like if you had mm. 10 protein, you know, what if you had 20 grams of protein, think of it as 10 carbs and how many units would that be? You know, um, But that, I mean, because of the digestion rates, that's such a, that's why that's such a mysterious question. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and that's, and they can't like, no health provider can give you all the answers. No. As like, you need to be your own advocate. And, and that's why getting that data is so important. Oh yeah. Yeah. And um, I think it's, I think I want to highlight also how you can use this information that we're talking about today to your benefit. Um, so being able to control your blood sugar better because now you know that this is a factor. So, so let's say a scenario, your blood sugar is low. So since we, what we've talked about today, you would use probably something that doesn't have protein, doesn't have fat, has very little fiber. So it hits your system quick. So that way it brings your blood sugar back up. Obviously the amount of what you eat is going to impact how much it goes up, which you need to be careful of because it's really easy to overeat when your blood sugar is low. Um, mm-hmm. But to keep in mind that um, the less protein, the less fat, and the less fiber, the quicker it's going to go up. So if you need it to go up quick, that's a good option. However, if you want to flatten the curve, so to speak, then adding those things in will help keep that curve flattened and keep it nice and steady, which is something we all we diabetics always like to see on that graph um that that nice steady flat curve there right right um so knowledge is power and and another way you could use this is what probably we'll talk about here in the future um is let's say you want to try a diet like a ketogenic diet something very very high fat Mm -hmm. or something like the carnivore diet you know, which is like all meat, I mean, tip to tail kind of meat protein, mm-hmm. but like some can internalize that as just like straight meat, you know, yeah. when they hear those words, there's other forms of those things. Or let's say you're going on a low glycemic index or you're, you are doing vegan, like wouldn't knowing how those digest in your body like that, that's going, wouldn't that be important? Like, you know, the answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> like knowing, and, and I think that's where we're going to be going with this conversation. I think you and I agree easily, like as seen throughout however much time we've been talking about how important just digestion is. Cause then you throw in autoimmunity in there. You, you do throw leaky gut, you know, you do throw um, just, you know, IBS, you throw yeah. Crohn's in there, you know, Having your gallbladder taken up. There's like this part of a conversation is so much bigger and, overall health and even as non-diabetics which i know most people are diabetic but i know some are non-diabetics who listen to this too so i mean mm-hmm. it's just so so important and your success rate on those certain types of diets and that those lifestyle because digestion is like such a center point in your life knowing and getting digestion right is going to then affect your success on those diets or then going to affect your blood sugar on those diets and then your quality of life on those. And then your motivation and how excited you are with those. Like, I lost 50 pounds on the ketogenic diet and my blood sugar has been awesome. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, I lost, you know, I lost some weight on the ketogenic diet. But, like, my blood sugar was all out of whack. I couldn't sleep. Like, digestion, 
that's mm-hmm. that's you know it's important oh yeah definitely yeah one point i want to hit before we kind of close things out because i forgot to say this before which is the timing of those different macronutrients is also impactful mm, sure. so yep. Yep. if you have a lot of protein and fat with carbohydrates all at the same time it reacts differently than if you were to have that fat and protein before you then have the carbohydrates. So, um, so if you have protein and fat before having carbohydrates, it's going to slow down that digestion even more and slow down that spike even more so than if you have it at the same time. So you can also play with that aspect as well. Absolutely. And that's where then the reality of meals comes into play. And it's like, all right, I ate my first plate, but then you go back and you get helpings, second helpings of just the burger, but it's no bun burger. Like you're like, Oh, I had too many carbs. I think I'm just going to have the protein, you know, it's going to lean burger. But then like 30 minutes after that, 15 minutes after that, you get dessert mm-hmm. and you get ice cream, which is high fat, high carb. You're mm-hmm. like thinking about these things and how it stacks. Like you just said is dramatically important. Cause then it's going to change how you should be giving your insulin. You're just going, Boom, bolus after bolus after bolus. Yo-yo after yo-yo after yo-yo is really what I should be saying, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, timing of the food, of those macronutrients, absolutely important. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. Yeah. Um, We've been rambling for a long time. Not rambling. I think this has been really productive. I got got really jacked near the end of it. Heck yeah. (laughs) But uh, let's let's end it on like a, you know, burst my beta cells. Uh, Grady, uh, I'm excited because I actually don't know what you're about to say. You know, what's been bursting your beta cells lately? Yeah, so um, I think, and this happened a, a little bit ago, but um, I got some furniture from my from my parents, and part of that furniture is um, some bed bed sheets, and I was I was excited about it because a the bed sheets were much better than the ones I had already, and b I had blood all over the last bed sheets because of like, you know, pumps falling out or, you know, my, <laughs> oh my finger, finger pricks in the middle of the night that didn't stop bleeding before I fell back asleep. <laughs> and so I was, I was so excited about it. And then um, about like a week or two in, there was a late night where I, or I woke up low. So I checked my blood sugar and then I went back to sleep and I woke up the next morning and there's blood on the sheets again. <laughs> And I'm like, no, these are so such nice sheets. The thread count is so high. Exactly. <laughs> That's hilarious. I I can't say I, I can relate, man. I feel like I feel like maybe sometimes I get like enough times where it's even hard for me to picture a moment. It's like, oh, I have blood on my sheets. That was from my low blood sugar pump, or yeah. like. Wow, They're not very cool. big spots for the finger six one, but on my previous sheets, there was like some big old stains from when my like pump either got ripped out or something and then it wow. bled in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It looked like wow. somebody got murdered on my bed. Holy cow. That's kind of nuts. <laughs> wow. Well, that would burst my beta cells too. That would, yeah, that would, that would be not be fun that you just got a new pair uh wow yeah it was it was very unfortunate i was sad about it but nonetheless what was what's your uh burst my beta cells moment so i was kind of ticked off 
and and burst my BSLs at myself mostly. I recently had some dental work done, you know, less, not even a week ago, and I was put under general general anesthesia for you know three plus hours. And anesthesia and anesthesiology is a very very complex mm-hmm. um, science and clinical practice. Messes up with your body in lots of different ways. Um, and it didn't even occur to me to think about what would do with my insulin sensitivity, my insulin resistance after I had the surgery. All I thought about pre prior to the surgery was that I'm going to be fasting beforehand and I'm going to be under not able to control my sugar. So I need to change my basal rates. And, you know, I was preparing for the operation, but not what was coming afterwards. Mm. And what first my beta cells was, man, on top of just my mouth being swollen was that my blood sugar was so flipping high. And I was like 200, 300. I could not get it down. I was getting basal rates of like 200%. I was using like bolus ratios of like 200%. I was just giving insulin to give insulin. I was taking berberine. I was walking, you know, trying to do like zone two cardio. I could not, I was not allowed to work out. I ran once, but that was after my blood sugar came down. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, it just burst my beta cells and ticked me off. And nobody thought to say, hey, this might mess with your diabetes because anesthesia is messes with your nervous system and your endocrine system a lot. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it's going to mess with your insulin sensitivity. You know, maybe because it was a dental procedure. And I was, you know, therefore in a dental office. And I, maybe if I was in a hospital, there'd be more of this um, in-house team making sure like all parts of my diabetes was taken care of. But, you know, being a chiropractor and being this my profession, they saw my A1C. They were like, oh, you know, you got it. It's fine. We don't need to worry about it. Mm-hmm. I just, it just ticked me off. I didn't even, th- it literally didn't even cross my mind until it was happening. And by then it was too late and I couldn't prepare accurately for it. Yeah. And it didn't help that like immediately after the surgery, I got some like soft serve ice cream. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> but that's, just, but you know, that's kind of just what people do after like a dental procedure, right? Soft foods. Um, so that really, <laughs> that really burst my beta cells, you know, this past week was that just my not knowing why until it's too late and knowing that it was something that not even on my radar kind of just like, like ticked me off personally myself so that was that was kind of my moment yeah yeah that's i mean that's tough but um i guess any of those graphs they were unreal (laughs) yeah 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 it's that i know those moments even though i haven't necessarily been through um that anesthesia i know those moments where you're just frustrated you just can't get that blood sugar to come down no matter what you do Uh, Mm -hmm. man that's just frustrating as heck Mm mm-hmm Yep. Yep. So anyways, if you've listened to this whole entire podcast, thank you. <laughs> I have no idea what hour mark we're at. Um, but uh, we appreciate you. Please share this to any diabetic or non-diabetic um, person you might think enjoy it or find value in it or just needs to hear it. Or even if it's just parts of it. Uh, you know, Green and I love connecting with other people. Uh, we've gotten messages from people and, and know talk with people and walk through things and you know this is just really what our passion is so uh we're gonna 
in the future be talking about some specific diets and have more guests on in the future, but we kind of want to get through some content uh, first before we do that. Mm -hmm. um, but if you've listened through all this, uh, thank you. And uh, we appreciate you. We love you. And um, hopefully your beta cells never have to burst. Yep. We'll see you later. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you found value in today's conversation, we would appreciate it if you gave a five-star review. It really helps us branch out our community and get our message across to those who really need to hear it. If you want to interact with us on social media, you can follow us on the Die Buddies podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or moral outrages, you can email us at thediebuddiespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks.